This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am super excited today to welcome Lisa M. Johnson and Rosemary A. Joyce to the program. We'll be discussing their new edited volume, Materializing Ritual Practices, published in 2022 with the University Press of Colorado. Lisa M. Johnson is Assistant Professor in Residence in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and Rosemary A. Joyce is the Professor of Anthropology and the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Distinguished Professor in the Social Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Joyce, Professor Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Could you talk about the genesis of this book? Um, the... Um... I'm happy to do that. The book itself is part of a longer term and ongoing project that's international and that originated in Paris at the CNRS, so the Parisian Center for Research in Anthropology, with a nucleus of of mainly linguistic anthropologists and archaeologists working in Mexico and adjacent parts of Central America who became interested in seeing how to think about rhythms and specifically ritual rhythms in the long-term history of indigenous people in that area. The network includes um, a couple of U.S. locations, UT Austin and Berkeley being the primary ones. And Lisa joined the network when she was a PhD candidate here at Berkeley. Together, we organized a conference on this campus. One of the things the network does is holds conferences in different locations. And given that we were both archaeologists with an interest in theories of materiality, we decided to try and make that the focus of this otherwise transdisciplinary anthropological project. The title of the book is Materializing Ritual Practices. What do you mean by that? So one of the things that draws together this group of scholars is that all of us are interested in ritual, whether it's in the past, which archaeologists can approach only through material traces, since we don't have the opportunity to observe people or to talk to them, or in the present where, on the one hand, linguistic anthropologists uh, in this network in particular record the 
um, sort of orations that go on during rituals and then do very detailed analyses of everything from the way that breath is held and the way that words are emphasized with different volume or, or um, impact to ethnographers who um, involve some of the same observations of material traces as archaeologists. What bound all of us together is an interest in practice, in how people do ritual, in what in ritual is a doing rather than a thing. So mm. we wanted to draw attention to the materiality of all those different kinds of ritual practices. And I think one of the biggest distinctive things about the volume is that we embrace the idea that sound, language, and music are also material, that they actually have effects that are material, but they also take place through material substrates. So materializing is what makes this particular product of the network specific um, and distinctive. Ritual is what we were involved in together, and practices is kind of the binding of all the different kinds of anthropology that we do. Mm -hmm. Professor Johnson, did you have anything to add? Um, well, no, no, no I, I don't actually. And I, I think probably what um, Professor uh, Joyce is going to go into is um, this theme really came out in all our meetings, this, this idea of materiality. It, it was really fun to see it come out because it came out in the most unexpected ways. I think, you know, we also often assume linguists aren't really going to talk about that or ethnographers, but um, we found that we were um, talking about some very similar phenomena, even though our, our approaches were different. And so that was another exciting thing about doing this book under a common theme uh, is to find those threads that were kind of connecting all of us. Yeah, and I think following up on what Lisa just said, um, one of the things that having this ongoing relationship where we meet um, more or less once a year or sometimes more often if we can, mm -hmm is that it's a set of conversations that we're having. So it's not like just a bunch of people coming together briefly. Uh, we're really deepening our understanding. So each time we have one of these conversations, there are these aha moments when people who might not have thought of their practices, their, their kinds of research approaches as being similar, mm -hmm. actually do realize it. And we begin to put together... Um, a more integrated, multi-vocal uh, kind of an anthropology, which is mm -hmm. part of what the volume represents as well. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, after you know those kinds of discussions, when I go back to archaeology, I remember some of the things that that linguists and ethnographers were talking about in these meetings, and it kind of gives me an additional perspective to bring to my work, remembering kind of their different approaches. So it, it it's multi-layered now. I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. So you've divided the volume into three sections. The first section is called temporalities of the event. The section, the second section is called ritualization of place. And the third section is called the materiality of sound. Could you talk about why you chose these three and maybe touch on the role of each of these sections? Um, that, 
again, emerged in practice as Lisa and I looked at the different participants in the volume. Um, her work takes the event as central. And so we saw that as being a critical way of joining the uh, archaeological and the ethnographic pieces. And I'll, I'll mm -hmm. let her talk a little bit more about that. Um, ritualization of place is a long-term interest of archaeologists because, again, we have these materialities, but it began to emerge as well in the ethnographic contributions. So we wanted to draw attention to the fact that these ritual practices are always emplaced. They're always uh, located in a spatial context that gives them meaning mm -hmm. and is given meaning by them. Uh, but as I said before, possibly the most distinctive thing about this volume is the um, number of participants we have who are dealing with sound as a materiality and sound mm -hmm. as a materiality in the form both of music and of linguistic utterances. And that's an area where, although there's a, you know, about possibly 10 years, the last 10 years, there's been a lot of attention to materiality mm -hmm. in anthropology, materiality of sound remains one of these things that people gesture towards. But unless you're a musician or a singer or somehow a person for whom sound is physically present, I think it's very easy to treat it like, well, that's that's an externality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lisa. Well, I... I um I, I recall Alessandro Lupo's chapters like if if you look at some of the chapters too he talks about prayers and the way they talk about giving prayers is almost as if giving a gift giving a material thing so even the way they describe giving prayers there is this kind of reference to a physicality um and so that was really interesting to to read that and to hear about that um and so and he even likens it to similar to the kind of material caches we find archaeologically so either way these are offerings being made you know so uh, there are definite connections there even though we've kind of separated them by themes as i said they were they were so easy to connect so chapter two it's called From One Moment to the Next, Multiple Temporalities in Classic Maya Ritualized Events. What do you mean by multiple temporalities? Um, so what I was discussing there, and, and um, others have talked about this too, so it's there are different kinds of experiences of time and temporality. I mean, th these, these meetings really did look at rhythms and... Um, and in this case, we're, we're talking about rhythms of experiencing time. So I talk about different types of temporality. So you have the lived times, the way that we experience it on a day-to-day -day basis that can kind of blur <laughs> into memory. And then you have these eventful moments. Um, and so you can experience time differently at the lived scale, um, and many of us, I think we can relate. I know when I stand in front of class every once in a while, I go, what, what day is it? <laughs> mm -hmm. So you start to, the, the kind of repetitive daily actions can begin to blur your perception of time. But then you have these eventful moments. Um, and, and I mentioned in the 
chapter just as a way to kind of visualize that Tim Ingle describes it like beads on a string, right? So you have the, the kind of daily monotonous day to day, and then you have these kind of heightened moments. Those heightened moments, especially in these ritual contexts, tend to be very materially rich. We see them archaeologically, those moments, and you can appreciate the kind of sensorial, like those eventful uh, moments as well. But simultaneously, there are other temporalities at work. So you have rainy season, harvesting and sowing and organic growth and death. And then when that's happening, of course, we have the more abstract kind of calendrical time. So there are multiple times we can think of. And um, Many of those are, we can see the evidence for those archaeologically. So in a sense, when we are excavating, we are dealing with multiple temporalities here. Yeah. If I can, so, if I can yeah. add to, if I can add to that, I think one of the things that, that Lisa's um, work shows very well, but that is uh, a frontier of contemporary archaeology, is that often people think of archaeological materials in this layer cake fashion. It's mm -hmm. an old fashioned image where you have mm -hmm. different periods of time and they're separated by a boundary from one another. Mm -hmm. um, that gives you the sense that time is chunks and time is macro. So the chunks are hundreds yeah. of years. They're above the human scale. What we're doing in this project, what Lisa does in her research, what archaeology is doing these days that's really interesting, is instead looking at these um, deposits and then looking at all the different kinds of scales of time that are represented in mm -hmm. them. And it's especially evident in her work since she's dealing with the remains of ancestral creation, the creation of ancestors from the recently dead through repeated acts of commemoration over centuries, mm -hmm. and that that um, becomes this, a person who had a, maybe a 60-year lifespan becomes an ancestor who's timeless. So it's also that there's these different textures of temporality, like Lisa's talking about, but also different scales, all at the same moment, mm -hmm. um, instantiated in that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think by narrowing these kind of time scales down to gener generational time and live time, it's a kind of past we feel a little more of a connection with. It's not as abstract. It's something you can appreciate. And so... Um, that's something that we've always tried to do is looking for individual lifetimes, individual moments um, in human history rather than this abstract, well, it was a classic period from 250 to you know 900. Um, that's a lot of time to cover. But if you could talk about individuals' lifetimes and generational time, it's something much more you know, that we can appreciate uh, for sure. But it's and, it's important to recognize that those multiple temporalities exist. We do often default to the more abstract time. And, and as Professor Joyce has mentioned, we, we, we kind of line up our chronologies. We give you a series of dates. This happened and this happened and this happened. But you don't really get a sense for the more 
uh, kind of subjective experiencing of time. And you know that that's at different scales. It tends to be at different scales. Yeah. And in order to get at that in the chapter, you develop this um, discussion of your methodology of micromorphology, right? Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about micromorphology and why that's so important in the chapter? Yeah, well, you know, I'm certainly not the first to do that. There are a few that kind of drew my attention at the potentials for using these kinds of method. You know, traditionally, this method is used to study the formation processes, the natural formation processes of soils. But it's also uh, very effective in, in, in recognizing anthropogenic processes at the microscopic scale, too. And so... As a graduate student, I was kind of introduced to this method, and it and it immediately made me begin to think, well, if we're dealing with stratigraphy, which archaeologists deal with stratigraphy at the large scale, this gives me micro-stratigraphy. So if I am thinking about single events, this is gives us a possibility to maybe even see those single events that we could miss and often do miss macroscopically. So in searching for individual moments um, and how they're unique in ritual. So it, the interest was, and in how is ritual, how does it materialize differently or, or in a unique way? So you would expect a kind of unique material signature for those kinds of events. And so by implementing a more microscopic technique, it allowed me to kind of detect single depositional episodes um, and so as I talk about, I was very fortunate at the kind of um, context that I encountered, but even though it, it's very visual, you can't miss it. It is very visually, it's, it's material, materially rich. Often it's difficult to tell whether this was one single kind of episode or if it's accumulation, you know, because um, there is this tendency to, to return to the same place over and over again and, and kind of do some of these same practices, but at the microscopic level, you can you can see individual events versus multiple dumping, multiple accumulation. In addition to this was um, relevant in this discussion of multiple temporalities, because as a method, the principles of micromorphology are very much along the lines that I saw a connection between that and kind of these materiality studies, because it's all about interrelationships. The relationships of individual minerals and components, organic and inorganic components, and how together the unique kind of fabric it makes. So, you know, theoretically it kind of worked as well. And you can detect those different temporalities, the seasonal, the, the rainy seasons, the even geological time, right, in the kind of parent material that's in the soil fabric. So I am looking at multiple temporalities when I see these thin sections, because you have remnants of geology and soil formation, but then you have the anthropogenic stuff, the lived time, right? So um, so I thought it was very much a relevant and effective kind of method in this discussion. Yeah. yeah. If I can add to that, um, one of the things is, as Lisa said, she learned this at Berkeley, and I still remember as a, mm -hmm. a faculty member, um, before this was a widely known method, listening to visitors talking about this transfer from soil science of the idea of excavating uh, cuts through the soil and then examining them under a microscope to see mm -hmm. the tiny laminated levels 
and the differences that really mm -hmm. do give you a unique moment. Um, and the first student that I worked with who used this was trying to look at uh, household activities in the Pacific where most of what people use in the household mm -hmm. is perishable. So there's not a lot mm -hmm. of, of uh, preserved artifacts. And where a lot of the activity that we might be interested in um, about women's lives in particular, which was of interest to this particular student, um, is not otherwise visible. Mm -hmm. And I can still remember, remember the impact on me as a scholar of this student saying, I can see the, the signs of sweeping. Because mm -hmm. the idea that the moment when somebody swept a floor leaves a trace behind, that if you can look at it on this microscopic scale, you're connected to that moment of work, to that moment when that particular person was there. Mm -hmm. That's that's very powerful. And the fact that it's it's this you know, highly scientific method used by soil scientists mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it has to be used in this kind of generalizing or anonymizing way. And we were able to see, which was, I mean, similar to that, um, we had an ancestral altar that was plastered. And at, at the microscopic level, we saw they replastered it. So now we could talk about the maintaining of this altar that we know that at least in one generation, there was a time where they had to come back and, and refurbish this altar and replaster. So I would not have seen that without the, without the thin sections. I wouldn't. So if I really was interested in single events, there it was, you know, at the microscopic level. So you can, appreciate the, the, the communities returning multiple times to this space and conduct, you know, conducting these, these individual activities. Yeah. So, and yeah, I can still was, remember, cool. I can still remember a, a colleague who's an ethnographer uh, probably 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, oof, um, challenging the idea that as an archeologist, we could talk about practices. Um, this ethnographer, basically said, oh, you know, there's no way because you're not seeing people doing things. Um, all you get is this, from his perspective, sort of compressed layer of time. And even then, this was before I really knew much about micromorphology. Even then, what I said to him is, no, you know, if we excavate properly, you know, in term, in modern terms, which isn't 10 centimeter levels it's you know might be just like one scrape for each of these deposits what we're able to see is the repeated actions the same kind of residue repeated over and over and over again so what we're actually seeing is the creation of bodily habitus in the soil and then you add micromorphology and you're seeing it mm -hmm. through literally daily actions. That's incredibly powerful observationally. Mm -hmm. 
I think too, also in analyzing these thin sections, you can appreciate the larger environmental setting. So if you think about these events happening in a very wet jungle, lots of, I mean, where we, where I'm, you know, I'm working at Palenque, this is a a city notorious for the amount of water and rain that they get. All of that is very evident in the thin section. So you think about the kinds of settings for these events and that they're that they're in these very wet uh, settings as well. So we can actually see that amount of water had had altered the nature of this soil in a way. So so you you can appreciate larger contexts in which these events are happening all within a single little you know all within these little thin sections. So. Um, I, I thought it was a very exciting addition to these kinds of ritual studies and one that I hadn't seen much happening. If you even search for ritual studies in micromorphology, um, it's still very much in its infancy. I hope more will appreciate kind of what it can add. Yeah. And Professor Johnson, you just mentioned that you're that you're working in Palenque, which is, of course, a very famous location for Americanists. It's a very famous location for Mayanists. It's a very famous location for a lot of archaeologists. Maybe now is the perfect time to go into detail into uh, your your case study, your research in the chapter, and talk about what you did with the micromorphology. Yeah. So um, as Professor Joyce mentioned, this idea of the event, that's kind of what I was looking for. So if we were going to think about ritual, uh, not as a thing, but as something we do, um, but also in its materiality and the kind of relationships we forge with materials, uh, the event provides this kind of a way to think about that as these bounded moments. Um, And so... What I wanted to do, um, I targeted an an area to investigate in a residential group um, that was already, you know, has already underwent some archaeological excavations. And so I targeted an area that I suspected most likely would have residues of ritual. Um, So on the eastern side of the plaza of this residential group, there was a large collection of of burials and and, and clear evidence for mortuary-related events. So we have uh, mausoleums uh, constructed on the eastern side. And this is um, this is a common practice elsewhere in the Maya region, so it's not unheard of. It was a good area to kind of investigate. And what we found, which was really interesting, is there was this series of events very early on, and it really began with the burial of a, of a single uh, middle-aged man very early on in the early classic so with that burial, it initiated a series of events to follow. So they, they buried him and sealed his grave. But almost immediately after, there was this dense accumulation of burning and smashing of, of uh, serving ware and um, food, remnants of fish and, and turtle and, and hute and um, whole incensaria with incense. So you had, it was very visible um, but with the microscopic scale, it confirmed that this was one single event. This wasn't an accumulation over time. It was one single uh, large-scale event that followed his burial. Um, and so the way that I saw it was this kind of feeding the dead event, this um, symbolically feasting with the dead. And they left it there. They left this whole, the traces, the residues of this event they left it there and immediately within a single lifetime, they had 
built an altar directly on top. And then on top of the altar, you can see them returning and burning, these smaller scale burning, events of burning. And so it's a different kind of event after that initial big kind of feasting event. All of this happens um, and then is nearly uh, within another lifetime. They encase the entire altar, the remains of that feasting event within a stone-built mausoleum. So it is now rendered invisible within this mausoleum, but they left those residues in place. And in the course of building this mausoleum, in the construction field, there were little concentrations of burning. Um, and so you see that they're still not done, right? There's still these events that have to happen before that entire mausoleum is completely done uh, and constructed. So what I tried to do where it was possible was collect those, you know, micromorphology samples uh, in and overlapping those events. And it did confirm that these were single moments. These were not long spans of time. These were within generations. So you can think of the time it takes to remember someone to come back and visit your dead and so that it's still in, in, in living memory. Um, so, and this burial clearly was very special in this residential group. It was, it received a lot of attention compared to the number of other burials that we have since recovered. It had a very privileged location, uh, was treated very differently. No other burial in this residential group was given that kind of feast or that kind of altar. So this individual, we interpreted as a kind of founding ancestor for this household. Um, and for that reason, that event was very elaborate. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's worth mentioning that the group that Lisa's work was in is um, previously known from Palenque because there is an inscribed monument from it, um, from the end of this temporality. So not early, but an inscribed monument that goes back in time and talks about earlier periods. So we know that they had a historical consciousness and that they were talking about the family that lived there was talking about its roots. So this is a nice mm -hmm. uh, illustration of the parallelisms. Right. And it's another example of dealing with those multiple temporalities, because in the same spaces, you have time recorded in stone. We had a, ta you know, there's a tablet there in this house that has dates, but dates tied to life events, right? These were kind of life cycle events. So um, that stone tablet is kind of renders it more permanently, but it's there. Um, so, so yeah, there are multiple temporalities there for sure. Maybe we can now uh, move on to chapter three, which takes a much different approach towards examining events. Yeah. Could you maybe first describe for listeners, Professor Joyce, uh, the two rituals that you're looking at? Yeah. Um, so the chapter that, that I co-authored with Russell Sheptak um, is 
about the long tradition of the Lenca people of Honduras. So my fieldwork takes place in northern Honduras, um, which when the Spanish conquest was happening in the 16th century was a battleground both for indigenous resistance against invasion and between different Spanish factions. And that led to a situation where once a, a Spanish colonial regime was was established, uh, we rapidly lose um, the sort of identification of Lenca populations. And today, nobody in the air, in this specific area claims to be Lenca or Lenca descendant. The Lenca of Honduras are vibrant people um, who maintain their community control and their historical knowledge and reproduce their practices in central and southern Honduras. But this has always been a problem for us archaeologically because the disjunction that we then are part of seems to be taking history away from living people. So we're, we're not connecting the two. So what my, um, my colleague and I uh, have been doing and what we did in this chapter is try to take a historical anthropological approach to this question, looking at modern ethnographic uh, records of Lenka uh, ritual ceremonies, one called Compostura and one called Guancasco, and then looking at the archaeological evidence that we have for ritual practices, and then bridging the gap by assuming that there's a connection between them and looking at colonial documents. Um, the two uh, kinds of ritual practices by Lenca people have been studied in a classic two-volume ethnography in the 1960s and 1970s, but as if they were separate. Um, Juan Casco is uh, a process in which the patron saint of one village travels to visit the patron saint of another village. So they're inter-village visits by the patron saints, accompanied, of course, by people from the town. And on the moment of Juan Casco, there are other kinds of celebrations, mask dancing, music, um, some kind of rodeo-like performances, people on horseback doing things. So very much a town immersion celebration. And because they're tied to the Roman Catholic saints, they've been seen as best studied in conjunction with the Roman Catholic religion and separated off from compostura. Now, compostura is a Spanish word that means to repair. So these are repairs the other term used for them in Spanish is pago de la tierra, or payments of the earth. So they're repairs that are repairing the earth as a personified being for the damage that's done by human dwelling. Um, they're payments to different spirits. And when you look at the ethnography of Compostura, there are composturas for the agricultural fields at different points in the, the year. There are composturas for um, the domestic animals, all of which are introduced by the Spanish, except for turkeys. 
um, there's composturas for the clay and sand and firing facilities that together make up pottery. Compostura, in other words, is a practice through which Lenca people relate themselves to the entire world that they live in. And the thing is, these aren't that separate. Even the classic two-volume uh, ethnography that the first volume is a, about the sort of traditional composturas and the second volume is about the church-related things has to reference both of them together. So what we do in our chapter is start by saying, if you look at these two sets of rituals and step back and actually say, what are they telling us? Um, they, they illuminate a Lenka view of the world, a Lenka ontology, a Lenka philosophy, a Lenka way of thinking about being in which the world is full of animating substances. Humans, make claims on those animating substances which they have which we as humans have to then acknowledge and account for and those acknowledgments and accounting for take the form of various material exchanges um meals uh sharing drink burning candles or other you know burning substances so there's a, a kind of a language of ritual that emerges that sharing food, sharing drink, burning, and this should sound very similar to what Lisa Johnson is talking mm -hmm. about in her case, because mm -hmm. when we actually look at the region from Mexico through Central America, and probably wider than that in the Americas, we find mm -hmm. that this is a, a set of things, but it also expands to include music and dance, um, and especially mm -hmm. music and dance in which... Um, either human bodies stand in for other beings by wearing masks and, and costumes, or the beings themselves stand in for themselves in the form of mm -hmm. these saints' images. And so one of the things we did in our chapter was to broaden the ethnographic reach out to include things that have been considered folkloric sources. Um, Honduras has not been the focus of as much detailed anthropological research as some other places, such as Mexico. Um, so in some ways, the ethnography is thinner. We have fewer sources, but there's a rich history of folklore and folkloric studies. And when you look at what, um, what the stories that people tell folklorists or people who are collecting what they call folklore, these are stories that, again, reflect these kinds of relationships with the world. And one of the things that they repeatedly tell us is that these saints' images, not all saints' images, some saints' images are just images, but a lot of saints' images are lively. They get up and leave their churches at night. They go to the river and they come back. Um, the, the signs of this are in the locked church, sand or water being introduced. And that is then the framing that we take to our historical research, not looking for specifically exactly the same practice because it can't be the same practice. This is 2023. People in Honduras, Lenca people in Honduras have lived with colonial Spanish and Roman Catholic authorities for more than 500 years. Um, the the thing that we can look at is 
if we go to these sources, knowing that for Lenka people, the world is full of animating spirits and the distinction between living and non-living isn't drawn in the same place as Western Europeans have been taught to think of it, then all this archaeological stuff that we have takes on a very different texture. So the archaeological part, and I'm the archaeologist in this collaboration, um, we excavate deposits of smashed vessels from food sharing with incense burning. Um, and included in these are figural ceramics, including some near life-size three-dimensional sculptures of men and women doing various kinds of ritual gestures that are themselves lids through which burn the smoke from burning is led so that it comes out through orifices in the body literally animating those bodies, enacting the animacy mm -hmm. that is central to them. Um, those kinds of sculptures are the occasion, their display and um, deconstruction and deposit are the occasion for the most dramatic ceremonies that we have evidence for archeologically where we know people came from other places to visit the central place, like Guancasco today. You have a, um, a ritual that's, that's a ritual that an animate spirit is at. It's not a Roman Catholic saint. Of course it's not. But it might be an ancestral being. It mm -hmm. might be a supernatural being. And people come from allied places to be together as part of this event. Um, for me, the possibly the most emotionally important part of this was the, the help it gave us to our rereading of colonial documents, the, mm -hmm. the documents that we began to recognize were talking about the earth the same way and literally retranslating a document where we had read the Spanish tierra to mean soil, which is a perfectly good reading, and realizing that it, in context, it was the animate earth, because it talked about the poor earth, how it was suffering, using all the language that would otherwise be used about humans. So what we're doing here is trying to look at a temporality that is macro scale mm -hmm. and yet punctuated by events precisely the way that Lisa's talking about which can be seen from the level of the moment to the repeated pattern and through which people actually create their own histories and their own connections with with their their ancestors their predecessors the land the territory they belong in yeah, I think a, an important lesson to be drawn, at least for me in reading this chapter, was that even when materials on the surface look so different in the colonial context versus pre-colonial, that they can be seen similarly as doing the same thing. Or um, So I think that's an important lesson to be drawn, especially for archaeologists. We tend to look for um, patterns to be so... Um, 
so strict, we're looking for strict patterns um, and wanting to divide one type of event from an, another because uh, of those patterns. And yeah, in this case, if you see materiality as this kind of creative emergent kind of event, then you know they'll never be exactly the same. So uh, I think that's an important addition. I have a, a question about the volume in general, and maybe you can talk more broadly about your work here which is, what do you think are the benefits and drawbacks, if any, to interdisciplinary work? Mm -hmm. hmm. um, so interdisciplinary needs to be de defined first. Um, I'm more interested in thinking about this all now today as transdisciplinary. So sometimes mm -hmm. within anthropology, we talk about things like this, this project is interdisciplinary because we have the notion that anthropology encompasses in the U.S. version, mm -hmm. um, at least multiple different uh, research agendas, biological anthropology, archaeological anthropology, linguistic anthropology, um, ethnography, which is somehow the unmarked category, right? Um, mm -hmm. the, the, I go back <laughs> happily to the founders of our discipline in the late 19th and early 20th century who did not see this as four separate projects, no matter how much some standard histories say the four-field notion of anthropology, mm -hmm. but instead, instead understood that there was a unified project of understanding human being that could be approached in multiple ways and in ways that go beyond this. Folklore, for example, can be either in or outside of the framing of anthropology from this perspective. Um, so then what defines the joint project of our discipline of anthropology is not the research practice or the kinds of materials, but the questions we ask. And if the questions that we're asking are about what it means to be human, um, how the the boundaries around the human are drawn, shift, and are understood, the effects of the, the being human on the world in which humans are embedded, in which increasingly we do damage to, um, then we have an anthropological project, which also doesn't actually stay in our discipline. Um, mm. So what doing this kind of uh, interdisciplinary work, intradisciplinary work, does for me is reinforce the idea that the questions shouldn't be disciplined. Mm -hmm. That the origins of disciplines are less about the naturalness of the question to a body of scholars trained in a particular way, and more to the definition of entities within academia. And I think we're in a transdisciplinary moment signified by things like the emergence of gender and women's studies, but like the emergence of African-American studies, indigenous studies, ethnic studies, um, where these, the solutions to these questions require us to break out of our disciplines. And anthropologists have been doing this for a long time. We mainly recognize ourselves doing it when we go off and read philosophy. Um, but we've also been doing it by having these kinds of conversations under the conceit that anthropology is the study of everything having to do with humans, right? I like to say to undergraduates, there are only two disciplines that claim to be the master discipline, philosophy and anthropology, and we're the one that got it right. Um, 
the so the the danger of transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary or intradisciplinary work is being ungrounded in understanding the language that comes from outside. So what it requires is, is a degree of humility and the willingness to spend the time to understand how people who are trained in that other discipline see their, their uh, definition of questions, their definition of methods, but we don't have to respect the boundaries. So if someone in another discipline wants to say, you can't use my work this way, as long as I really understand what they're doing, I feel like I can use their work that way. So I can use the folkloric materials. I have to understand mm -hmm. how folklorists do their work, construct their corpus. And that's actually really helpful because then I can see what's probably being excluded or um, mm -hmm. silenced where the gaps are. And that's just research. Um, and I think I, I, you know, think a lot about where's the academy in the grand sense going. I don't think we can afford all of these boundaries anymore. You know, the natural sciences got, got rid of them a long time ago. They're all transdisciplinary. So you have biophysics and um, bioengineering and all of these kinds of glommy things. We people down there in the social sciences and humanities, we're doing that as well. We just need to claim that as a strength. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree. I know that I find it increasingly difficult even teaching introduction to anthropology to non-majors and, and really explaining how the, the disciplines are different or how they are separate when they, they, you know, when you ask similar questions, you just provide different perspectives. And I think this book was a good example of that, right? When you're speaking to similar questions or similar phenomena, you can provide different perspectives. And I don't see that as a negative thing. I certainly see that as a productive thing. Mm -hmm. Now maybe we can touch on something else, which is uh, Professor Joyce mentioned the competition between anthropology and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And philosophy comes in this book very early on in the introduction when you start talking about new materialism. Could you talk about the role of new materialism in this book? Um, yeah. So for me, uh, the broad set of highly divergent scholars who who sometimes call themselves new materialists or sometimes are called new materialists by other people, right? So we're already in a definitional landscape that's difficult. This is a great example of transdisciplinary scholarship. The mm -hmm. questions around how we define what materiality is um, within the social sciences, we have one classic, very strong grounding, which comes from Marxist dialectical materialism. And that is very useful. Um, but anthropologists have been prov prov um, provoking about that for a long time. If you read David Graeber's work on value, what you find is that exactly how the material is understood and bounded, um, the cross-cultural perspective that comes in anthropology or the effect uh, from Michael Hertzfeld's perspective of becoming aware of the common sense of others makes you aware of your own common sense, that makes it harder to say materiality is X. 
um, you have to then shift to saying materiality is seen in this particular contingent way and does specific things. And that moving to materiality doing things gets us to new materialists. And new materialism itself has multiple potential genealogies, right? Mm -hmm. um, I came to new materialist thought through feminist thought. So for me, it follows from body materialism, feminist body materialism. And I find it kind of interesting when I'm dealing with other archaeologists and they come from somewhere else and don't even know that there's this prior history because it is an earlier history. It goes back to the 1990s. It's not from 2010. Um, and what that history says is, oh, it's actually really difficult to define what constitutes a bounded body. Mm. And, oh, that process of, of defining what constitutes a bounded body is itself political. Um, mm. It's an exercise that positions different entities as being more potentially effective than others, which is very congenial to an archaeologist because one of the things that's been, you know, a object of our debate for, again, 30 years is things being able to do things mm -hmm. without or beyond what humans intended them to do or want them to do. So I have these two genealogies coming together, sort of feminist body materialism and um, object agency, as it's sometimes looked at. When we think about the broader group from CNRS that this, this project is part of, the, the rhythms group, immediately for me, the question that has to come is, in what form do rhythms materialize? Because rhythms don't exist except in some way seen as their effects, seen as their um, matter, they do things. And mm -hmm. so for me, the, the whole project has to be grounded in an engagement with contemporary new materialist thought, broadly construed, although I've got some alleys in it that I'm more interested in than others. Yeah, I, and it's a way to talk about the things doing things without having to make them human things, right? So it's it's they don't, we don't have to anthropomorphize them or give them a sort of human agency. They're allowed, you know, you you recognize the activeness of things without making it a human kind of activeness. And I think that's um, that's a more recent departure. Is is, is that um, is yeah. recognizing that. Yeah, I think that's all, um, you know, that's all highly pertinent. Um, so, you know, that's, right. that's... And we are dealing with these events that are very sensual, right? So the, some of the events we describe, we can imagine uh, the, 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 the uh, effect of, of the kind of the overwhelming uh, uh, sensorial kind of um, uh, events. And so there, there are cases where the human may not be at the center. So yeah. if you approach it more from a relational kind of perspective, um, yeah. yeah, you can yeah. talk about that. 
I love this book so much. Uh, my volume is now highly annotated with lots of underlines and exclamation marks and all sorts of other things. I really found this book so exciting, so illuminating. You touch on so many things. Each chapter had some new perspective that for me was was supercharged and exciting. I have one final question, which is a tradition here on the New Books Network, and that is to ask what you are working on now. Well, Rosemary and I are still attached at the hip, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is, a, there is a joint project that we're working on. I'll let yeah. Lisa talk about yes. that. But I am, uh, in theory, uh, doing the final revisions of a book about geological materials in Honduras. Um, the working title is A Medieval Honduran Alchemy that looks at, that tries to take geological materials and their liveliness seriously by beginning with that Linka ontology mm-hmm. and trying to see the uh, things that happen through the inter- intra-action of the materials and humans seriously. Um, if I weren't also teaching and doing all the other tens of thousands of things that should have been done by now, but it will be, it will be so. Um, and so on my end, Rosemary and I are still collaborating in Palenque. So this is a, another project that's happening simultaneously. So we've stayed in Palenque, but we're broadening our, our questions and our investigations beyond this single residential group that I talk about in the book to take a neighborhood scale. So we're, we're, we're bringing it out even larger to look at the neighborhood immediately surrounding this area. So now we're kind of venturing into questions in terms of uh, urbanism and diversity of neighborhoods. Um, and so we have, you know, our field work has finally resumed and um, hopefully it will have a volume coming out about um you know, urbanism in Mesoamerica and, and integrating some of our more recent work in that area. And once you get those projects done, you know, I'd love to have you both back on. Oh, I thank, well, thank you. you. I'd love to. Mm-hmm. The book is Materializing Ritual Practices, published in 2022 with the University Press of Colorado. Professor Johnson, Professor Joyce, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much.